Before this episode of the Final Word Podcast, another quick update from our friends at Brick Lane Brewing. We are grateful for Brick Lane's support through the weekly episode, Storytime. Did you hear Daniel Norcross's wild 904 triumph? Are you kidding me? Start with Storytime 59 and then follow it up with Storytime 60. Totally worth it. And also, the daily episodes. Adam and Jeff have been super busy. You can find all of those, the daily episodes, wherever you listen to podcasts, and you can watch them on the Final Word Cricket Podcast YouTube channel. There are currently 23,000 subscribers. We'd love to get that to 25,000. So if you are not a subscriber to the Final Word Cricket Podcast YouTube channel, please stop by, check it out, and if you like it, subscribe, and then you'll never miss a video. In cricket, there are great partnerships. Podcasting is no different. It's the partnership between the show, Adam and Jeff, the sponsor, Brick Lane Brewing, and you, the listener. I'd use your name, but I don't know who you are, but thank you. In addition to subscribing to the YouTube channel, please check out Brick Lane Brewing on Instagram and Facebook. Say hello and tell them the final word sent you. You can order all your Brick Lane favorites at bricklanebrewing.com. It's a super easy way to get your hands on all of the various brews. Brick Lane Brewing, based and brewed in Melbourne, Australia. Great city, great beer. Thank you, Brick Lane Brewing, for being part of the final word. And as always, thank you for listening. That's enough from me. Now, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon, and the final word. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself And there's some stories I can tell you It's the final word story time Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon for another weekend We're actually recording this on Tuesday morning because I'm going on holiday tomorrow Which you will hate me for if you live in Australia But um, such is the uh, COVID restrictions not existing here anymore That we can fly away and have a a little visit with Winnie And take her to the beach before it's uh, too cold to do so And I'm also going to the Cricket Riders lunch today, Jeff uh, Which the last time I went to that Mm -hmm. two years ago It was receiving uh, your Book of the Year award And (laughs) thus I had to give a speech I think at about three o'clock or something like that. So I had to really temper myself, had to really pace myself in terms of the the pre-game beers and that kind of thing. So I didn't slur my words or anything like that and and caught up later on, I suppose. But yes, good memories of that day and looking forward to getting down to the Oval and putting on a suit and (laughs) doing all those fun things later today. And if anybody ever doubts the commitment that Adam Collins has to the Final Word podcast, he's running late to the Cricket Writers Lunch in order to record this episode. <laughs> not late yet, but anticipating. Oh, I will be. will be late. <laughs> no, but not, but not, you're not currently late, but no. you will be late given how long it takes us to record one of these shows. And we know that and you know that and it's best to be upfront. That is true. Although I'm hoping to knock this off in like, let's say an hour or so, which means I can mm-hmm. do as I must. I'm hosting four tables. So, you know, one must be prompt or close to prompt but we'll see how we go Mm -hmm. Jeff let's get straight into it I think let's play the game uh, that we like to call and you like to declare as Nerd Pledge Nerd Pledge it's the game of nerds the game of pledges the game we play with the lovely people on our patron page here's how it works we need to fund this show we make it twice a week Uh, there are things involved there are costs there is time there are people to pay and we have to do all of that and we asked for help and people responded. They responded to the call. <laughs> they heard the bugle and they flocked to the stockades, the barricades. They took up arms against a sea of troubles and they said, let us help you by sending uh, a little amount here, a little amount there, and it all piles up uh, into enough to make it work. But the thing is, instead of sending a regular round number, these lovely cricket people send us a specific number, a cricket number, and we have to work out what the number means. For instance, first cap off the rank today, Amelia Vine 
presumably from the UK, has sent in three pounds, three British pounds and ten British pence, I assume, rather than pence of any other country because that would be weird with the British pounds. So three ten, it could mean 3.10, it could mean 31.0, it could mean 310,000, it could mean anything, but 310 is what it is. And it doesn't come with a clue. So, Jeff, that gives you the, the space to work in. We like these. I mean, when we go through the numbers each week, Jeff, and we see a couple that are clueless, so to speak, that means we can do as we see fit. And then if we haven't got it right, that's fine. You get a second bite of the cherry when you give us a bit of a steer as to what we might be trending towards to get to the start line. But 310, I can think of a couple of fairly obvious ones out of the gate. And, Jeff, mm-hmm. I, I think that you might have gone to the same place as me. Well, I, what I've... What I've decided, um, I, I liked when you said Clueless. It just made me think I need to watch Clueless again because it is a great film. One of the uh, all-time, forgot, one of the all-time great rom-coms. Forgot to mention to you the other day, actually, when we recorded uh, Sunday night, I think it was. I rewatched Encino Man. Um, thought oh, I'd wow. give that a go, give, given all the Paulie Shaw chat on there. And you know what? It holds up. I think it holds up as a film. I think Brendan Fraser puts in a sterling performance because if you take an actor and say you don't have any lines, everything you do, like you're the star of the show, but everything's it's all body language, it's all facial, there's a lot of acting going on, but he doesn't get to say anything. So it's quite a challenge for an actor, I think. And, uh, you know, I mean, young Samwise, Sean Astin is pretty annoying, um, but, but you know, I mean, Paulie Shaw, is, he's just kind of sweet. He, he wasn't out there trying to be a macho man. He had a message about being yourself and being happy to be yourself. And, yeah, I thought it all came together. It all, it all hung together better than I thought it might watching back. After some of the stuff last year when we were thinking about getting Paulie Shaw on the show and then we realised that he might not be quite in keeping with the spirit and politics perhaps of the final word and how he mm. sees the world. I've just got a feeling that if we sort out Paulie Shaw's opinions on, say, vaccination at the moment, they might be fairly fruity. Uh, mm. that, would be my, that would be my immediate yeah. assumption. I don't think the parabola has necessarily ended up in a good place, but I think it started in a good place. I think that the, the Encino Man uh, uh, genre sort of era of Paulie Shaw, the heart was in the right place. So I'd like to think about the best of people rather than the worst. So Amelia Vine, 310. Now, we're not going to talk about John Edrich again, the 310, because we've done that in depth before, uh, unless there's some late subscribing sort of Edrich freak who goes, I want to hear about Edrich. I think that's fine. I think that we've done that enough. We won't talk about Brett Lee's 310 test wickets because we've also talked that talked about that before. But this just something just chimed for me, Adam, because I noted this weird phenomenon in the Discord chat page over the last few days. Frequent Discord correspondent, Guy Hornsby was writing about how much he'd enjoyed the last episode and I think he was doing this live as he was listening to it. Oh, this is very funny. This is very good. And then this sort of all caps, and then you just ruined it all by going there. But he didn't say where there was and there were various expletives and then other people chimed in about how terrible it was. And what I finally realised was that there was a test match in Adelaide in 2006 (laughs) that we mentioned. And a whole range of English listeners in there were suggesting there was no test match in Adelaide in 2006. They didn't recall such a such a match. They didn't think it had been played. It was very sort of, you know, Scacy, uh, Alan Bond kind of stuff. I do not recall. I have no recollection of that match. So, you know, in keeping with the sort of ICAC theme of, of the show over the last week or so, it's best to have a bad memory sometimes. Um, but here's the weird thing that I found out. There actually was a test match in Adelaide in 2006. Many people think there wasn't, but there was. And during that match, as we discussed uh, the last time we did this show with Paul Collingwood making 206, Kevin Peterson 158, together 
the partnership that they added was 310 runs. 310. Now, the, the crazy bit with this, as I found after reading through every delivery of it, because that's the kind of thing that I do, they only scored 26 boundaries in that partnership. Mm, mm. And Peterson hit 1 6. So 110 runs to the fence, which means they ran 200 of the runs in crazy heat at Adelaide. They physically ran 200 times from one end to the other during that stand, which was amazing, a partnership that took them to 468 for four. They made over 550 and declared. And the really crazy bit about this is they still managed to lose the match. I don't know if anybody knew that, but they actually lost that game after, you know, it was completed. They were not the winning team, nor even the drawing team uh, after that. 310, which may be the number that Amelia Vine wanted us to bring up. A nice little uh, return on where we were last week. Thank you, Amelia Vine, for allowing us to do that. Next cab off the rank is Rosie Piper, pledging in dollars, 12.34. Thank you, Rosie. That's just brilliant of you. A clue. A somewhat undersung player who rose to the top, however briefly. Yeah, somewhat undersung, rose to the top. Uh, I, I was trying to go through the, the ICC rankings to see who'd been there for a short amount of time, but uh, I couldn't necessarily see anything that worked there. Although I thought maybe maybe Mornay Morkel's a player who who was very good for a long time without necessarily being the best going around, but maybe maybe he topped the rankings for a little while somewhere here or there that I haven't found because he scored 1,234 runs across his entire international career. And I know that you like quirks, Adam, and we like quirks on this show, but this is across all three formats, including for South Africa and for two other teams, because the first three one-dayers of his whole career were for the Africa eleven against the Asia eleven ah. in the Afro-Asia Cup. And the last three T20 internationals of his entire career were for the World Eleven, which toured Pakistan in 2017, along with Tim Payne and some others. And so the start of his one-day career and the end of his T20 career were for non-South Africa sides, hmm. with the added little quirk that for the Africa Eleven in his second ever one-dayer, he made 25 with the bat, which remained the second best score for the rest of his 117-match career. <laughs> it started well and didn't quite live up to it. I'm curious to learn more about the African Eleven in the Afro-Asian Cup being one-day internationals at some stage. I mean, I knew that... 2007, I, know, I think. Yeah, I mean, it, it has happened. I, I mean... Yes, the very fact that you know that that well documented case in the tsunami game where Glenn McGrath came out and battled at four or something like that, which slightly undermined that. Then there was the T Twenty International uh, at Lords a couple of years ago, uh, all in great spirit, by the way. Like I'm, I'm all for getting the best players out um, to England to play in that, but having the broadcaster stand at first slip uh, to commentate from the cordon didn't look particularly good, and nor did it. Um, when George Bailey kept for that World Eleven in 2017 in Pakistan the first time. I think he said the first time he'd wicket-kept since junior cricket because there was no one else to mm. do the job uh, in that squad by that point in time. So, you know, there are some some blips along the way, kind of in, in, in the theme of our discussion around what should and shouldn't be first-class cricket. Well, yes, there are a few limited-overs internationals that have a bit of a question mark hanging over their status, mm-hmm. alas. I doubt that's where Rosie was... Um, was steering this. And I doubt where I'm going to go is where it is either, but let's have a swing anyway. I thought initially maybe Jason Crazier, uh, who took 12 wickets on Taboo, did he average 34 in that game? No, he did not. He averaged 30, so a little bit better uh, than 34. He conceded 358 runs (laughs) for his 12 wickets, which even to this day is a a most striking analysis on Test Taboo. We've had three big dogs 
who've taken 12 for 34 in first-class cricket. So it's been taken three times by three serious cricketers, the first of which was George Lohman, who's the the pre-20th century demon uh, who took 12 for 34 for Surrey against Hampshire in 1885. Is this match figures? These are match figures, yes. These weren't like these crazy games when like 15 players were in each team. Um, Yeah. You've got to go back to the 1700s for those, or the early 1800s for those when they were being deemed as first class. Some of the early visits to Australia had that kind of thing with, you know, great teams playing 21 Victorians or whatever it was. <laughs> Speaking of which, Tibby Cotter, who for the touring Australians against Worcestershire, the county that keeps coming up on, on story time week after week at the moment, he took 12 for 34 in that tour game in the 1905 Ashes. And then Tony Locke of Locke and Laker fame took 12 for 34 for Surrey against Glamorgan in 1957. So three massive names there, George Lyman, Tibby Cotter and Tony Locke. A fair way off the best figures in first-class cricket, though, which is what I want to tell you about, is irrelevant as it is to 12 for 34. I thought this was worth going with. <laughs> 12 for 18 is the best analysis in a, in a match, first-class match for 12 wickets by a chap named Andy Bennett in 1886. In New Zealand uh, for Nelson against Wellington on, on debut. He took six for six for thirteen, <laughs> and then he took six for five. As Wellington was skittled for thirty six, much like India at Adelaide last year, and nineteen. So he was a teenager, nineteen years of age. He played one further game, where he picked up seven further wickets, including another six for. So. In his first three innings with the ball in first-class cricket, he's gone six for 13, six for five, six for 55. And at the end of that second match, he had 19 first-class wickets at 6.3. He was 19 (laughs) years old, Andrew Percy Bennett. And then he put the cue in the rack. He said, I don't want to be a seamer anymore. I want to study medieval and modern languages at Cambridge. So that's precisely what he did. He effectively retired his cricket career there and then as a 19-year-old, went across to the UK, went to Cambridge and had all sorts of fun as a, as a diplomat being posted to New York as the, the UK or as the, the, the British government's consul general, later the ambassador to Costa Rica, Panama and Venezuela. But uh, yes, um, not quite 12 for 34, but 12 for 18. But I thought you needed to know, Jeff, that Andy Bennett, just two games of cricket at first class level, 19 wickets, three sixfers, an average of 6.3, all whilst age 19, then pulled the pin. Who does that? Who goes six for six for six for? Was it the one for in the fourth innings that, that <laughs> undermined his confidence? He thought, I don't have it anymore. Did he think, I don't want to take more wickets than my age? You know, I'm already 19, I've got 19. I mean, he was only surely 19. another. Uh, yeah. It's, another it's, game for, for the university wouldn't have gone That's what I was thinking. I I couldn't find this anywhere. I I suppose he threw himself so into his study and, you know, I mean, just reading between the lines, it feels like he was quite the aristocrat. But um, there's nothing there about him playing cricket at Cambridge or anywhere anywhere else for that Mm. matter. So just a passing interest, uh, but obviously made a a big impression. Thus, I thought, at the very least, he is a somewhat undersung player who did rise to the top, however briefly, in keeping with the clue of Rosie Piper, who, Jeff, this week... I believe, if uh, what you've told me is correct, has been chosen at random to win the Brick Lane Slab. The hat cannot be denied. When the hat speaks, we listen. The hat has said that uh, Rosie gets to give someone a slab. Could Rosie, you, you, they could give it to themselves. They could uh, give it to somebody else. Rosie can make the choice uh, where it goes, where the slab goes, as long as it goes within Australia. It is Brick Lane Brewing community, 24 cans thereof in a box. They make all kinds of beers. One of them, they have lots of fancy beers with fancy names. They also have 
the Bricklane Draft. Doesn't even have a name. No fancy name, no title, just the draft. Bricklane Draft. Uh, real beer is back. That's what they said about it. I don't know when it went away, but it's back with his high-gravity brewed beer. Now, what is a high-gravity brewed beer? I have no idea. If a low-gravity beer is made in space, a high-gravity beer, by definition, must be made at the bottom of a very deep hole. So made in Dandenong. It's made in Dandenong made- South. But do they have a really deep hole in Dandenong that can get it closer to the centre of the earth so the gravity will be more intense? Mm, good do question. they journey to the centre of the earth from – did they kick off from Dandenong? I, I don't recall well, the original film clearly enough to know whether Dandenong – I thought they went from Iceland, but maybe it was Dandenong. Yeah, maybe it's uh, – yeah, when they when Neville Schutt's book On the Beach was turned into a miniseries and much of that – well, a film originally, wasn't it? And mm. much of that – a miniseries later when Brian Brown played the, the principal character was many book, years later. Book first. But the book first, uh, then the original second. film. Then the, then, yeah. the, then the miniseries. But the film, they filmed much of it out near Dandenong in Berwick. Frankston. Yeah, Fra- I think a lot of it was filmed in Berwick mm. as well. Um, so not Yeah, not the beach away. scenes were all Frankston and Frankston. I think the suburban scenes were Berwick. Right, yes. And um, what, what was the quote? I, um, Melbourne was a great place to make a movie about the end of the world, where, mm. uh, which I think might have been out of context, but not a million miles away from Dandenong. Maybe when it they w- built the Dandenong Plaza in 1994 and they went a bit deeper into the ground to make m- more space. That, that could be seen as the, the Danny Nong hole. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to be disparaging about the place where I was born. I'm, I'm just looking for low gravity. I'm not looking for to disparage anything or anybody. Um, <laughs> yeah, the Ava Gardner quote, I think it's apocryphal, that quote. I think yes. she didn't actually say it, but it was made up by a reporter doing a press junket about, you know, to promote the film. And if it got attention, they were fine with it. But, yeah, I watched that again last year during the first lockdown. If oh, you're right. feeling sort of bleak and pessimistic about the world it's a great film to watch it will really help you sort of lean into that despair it's it's beautiful it's a beautiful piece of cinema um but it is you know it is it is one a piece of great sadness um which you will hopefully not have rosie when the brick lane comes your way and anybody else anybody else you want a sweet discount uh, here's how it works. For a couple of weeks, you can get a, a, a discount code if you go to the website. At the checkout, you put in MAXI145. That's all caps, M-A-X-I-145. And that gets you 14.5% off. And that's in honour of Glenn Maxwell's 145 against Sri Lanka. So chuck MAXI in the 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 coupon bar and, and see if it works. And uh, hopefully it does. Bricklanebrewing.com. Get along. Follow them on social media. And if you're enjoying a Brick Lane uh, this weekend, tag us in. Whilst you're perhaps listening to Storytime, tag in Jeff, me, uh, and Brick Lane. All their social media details are in the show notes. Jeff, next number, Shane Fag 154 That's in dollars. Ah, uh, Shane, who sent us that beautiful picture of, of a young Shane at probably four years old being held by Dennis Lilly in the, the change rooms after a test match in the 70s. Um, that's, it's on the patron page somewhere if you scroll back a bit. So 154 for Shane, I was thinking an Australian angle. I did for a second have a bell ring and I thought, is that how many runs Jess Jonathan made in the Canterbury test? Because I knew she made 99 and 50-something. Mm. But no, she made 153 runs, not 154. Close, close. So 99 and um, 54. Yeah, yeah, rather than 99 and 55. Five. Yeah, there we go. We got there. We got there. <laughs> I, knew, I knew we'd work it out in the end. How about this one? If you had to hazard a guess just at the dartboard, what do you think was Shane Warne's 154th test wicket? Uh, okay. Um, I know his 300th was at Sydney in 98. Uh, so working backwards from there. 
uh, halfway through 92, 98, let's say 94, 94, 95, let's say somewhere in the 94, 95 Ashes, maybe the flipper to Alex Stewart at Brisbane? Little, little bit after that, just a little bit after that. It was at the MCG. Oh, the hat trick. It, it came late in the match. It was Devin Malcolm. Ah, the hat-trick was, there you go. Do you like how was, I worked it, was, it out? Do you like the reasoning there? Yeah. I loved it. I loved it. I thought you, you came very close to the pin, um, really. I sometimes look at that list and, and think whether there's a good story in there. And that one is one. The 154th was the David Byrne catch short leg. 154. 154 is a score that Neil Harvey made. And uh, I, I, I apologise in advance to any England listeners here. In a test match at Adelaide in 1963. I'm sorry, there was a test match at Adelaide between England and Australia. I'm sorry it happened. It was real. It's fine, though. It was a draw, so don't get too upset about that. But in the end, I thought, what better than Adam Gilchrist's 100 against Sri Lanka? The one that supercharged the Gilchrist story, this interesting thing where the first couple of years of his one-day career, he's down the order, six or seven, classic wicketkeeper stuff, making a few handy not-outs, a couple of 50s, and then goes top of the order in early 98, makes an even 100 in his second match, opening the batting. Two games later, makes 118. Keeps scoring 40s and 60s and so on at a fast clip. Makes 103 in Lahore late in the year. All at a strike rate between 96 and 100. So they're all flying. And then January 99, back home, the Tri-Series against Sri Lanka. And he goes 131 in Sydney and then 154 in Melbourne, both striking at well over 100. And suddenly is away. He breaks the Australian one-day record, overtakes the 145 from Dean Jones. And it has this kind of avalanche effect with all of the other players. So Mark Waugh, a couple of years later, makes a 173. Hayden makes 181, not out. And then Watto, Shane Robert Watson, who still holds the, the Australian record with his 185, not out at Dhaka in 2011. But but that's when, that's when you really knew that Adam Gilchrist was something special at that point, I reckon, when he bangs 150 off 120 balls. Yeah, it was. It, you're absolutely right. I was there that day at the G. It was a Sunday, so it was a day game, not a day-nighter. The day-nighter against England the previous month was the really chaotic one where there was 90,000 people there and Warney came down uh, wearing the, the gold helmet to Bay 13 to cool things down a wee bit. But that mm. reflected what a massive tri-series it was, I think because the World Cup was coming up later that year. It was glorious weather throughout. There was the controversy with Murali early on in that series as well, which added some more spice to it. Sri Lanka were the world, the reigning world champions. England were hosting the World Cup later in the year. Australia, you know, were building to something special via this new guy, Adam Gilchrist, and that 154 from 129 really summed it up. I remember actually feeling a bit ripped off because the world record then would have been would have been Gary Kirsten's 178, I want to say, I reckon Syed Anwar had him covered by then, didn't he? Did Syed Anwar have him covered? Sorry, I I thought it might have been Kirsten before. In any case, there was a moment there when we were thinking, he's going to break the world record here. He's going to mm-hmm. you know, hit 200, but he was out in the 46th over, which which cooled that. But still, Australia make 310, mm-hmm. and the build for that World Cup was well and truly on. Well, he probably would have made 200 if he'd had another five overs at that point, you know, the way mm. the way he was going along that day. Uh, so it wasn't unreasonable to think exactly that. And, oh, what did Australia make? 310, oh. which, uh, you know, was the first number we started with that today. So, Shane, let us know how we went. Uh, jump on the Discord in the Nerd Pledge channel or drop us a DM if you want to give us a nudge. Nick Tewson up next, £2.96. <laughs> Pence. All right. Clue, says Nick, who um, is an Australian living in the UK. 
dusty old bastard is the clue. And then Nick follows up to say, I've just heard that the DOB pledges normally relate to a cap number. My pledge is not a cap number, but it does relate to a DOB. Well, this is firmly Adam's area in the dusty old bastard pantheon. What have you got for 296? All right, DC, you better play the music. Thank you, Chesney. Thank you, Nick Tewson, for the opportunity. So, first of all, it's a bloody shame that Nick wasn't talking about Cap 296 for England because that is a DOB in so many final word ways with Arthur Wellard, who played two test matches, one in 1937 in one in 1938, but never again. I wanted to tell you that he was a man from Kent. I wanted to tell you that his county said... Don't play cricket. Become a policeman instead. I want to tell you that he went to Somerset to try it on and became this like this uh, fun-loving all-rounder. He was a fast bowler but loved hitting it long. He had an average of 19 but hit over 500 sixes in first-class cricket. He, he, at his time of retirement, he was the only player to hit over 50 sixes in a season. He did it four times, a record of 66, which stood until 1985 when Ian Botham twatted 80 of them. So that gives a sense for the sort of player he was, as does the fact that he hit five sixes in and over at his old home ground at Kent against the great Frank Woolley, five sixes in and over, which of course was by definition the world record until Gary Sobers came along in 1968. So yes, Artie uh, went on to play until I think he was nearly 50. He bowled nearly 90,000 deliveries and took 1,614 wickets. Uh, Respect for him, even if he isn't our DOB today, uh, war cap number 296 for England, Arthur Wellard. Yeah. I mean, I remember, um, was it during the first half of the IPL this year when Chris Gale went past the thousand sixes in T20 cricket, Mark? And it was like, it's insane to think about it. You know, you scored 6,000 runs just by hitting it over the fence. But <laughs> Efficient. to do it in first class cricket and to do it in the, you know, the first half of the 20th century when there was, a, you know, some, some pretty spicy pitches and some pretty um, defensive tactics for the most part, just to be the guy who goes out and says, well, I'll lamp 50 per season <laughs> into the seats. I mean, it's pretty good going. Absolutely. Uncovered wickets and, and all the rest of it. So... Uh, on the basis, though, that Nick is from regional New South Wales, we think, I'm going to go with a man that was born in Carrawa, uh, who played probably too many tests to be dusty, but he did score 296 runs, the magic number here, in 17 test matches. So Joey Palmer, we're going to go with, or, or as he was known oh. on his birth certificate, George Eugene Palmer, often referred to as Eugene Palmer in writings of the time. But So a slightly different slant here that we're going with runs, not cap number. Um, he made his first-class debut uh, against Lord Harris's touring team, MCC team, in, in 1878. He soon became a sort of a must-select on those ropey wickets of the time with his cagey off-breaks, toured England in 1880, 1882, 1884, 1886, seemingly spent half of his life on, on boats. Must have uh, enjoyed getting away. But those were the days when they were getting the gate. You know, when it was yeah, all about... Yes, that's you, right. Yeah. You tour England as often as possible because you, the team, the touring party splits the gates from, from all of the matches that you play and you cash in. You make a, a lot more money than they made, you know, 60 or 70 years later. Yeah, yeah, true that. And the fact that there were tours every year was part of that. So it probably didn't hurt that he was married to Jack Blackham's sister, who was the captain for many of those uh, test matches in that run. <laughs> so he was kind of part of the family. He did at home, though, in the 1881-82 Ashes. Well, they weren't really... 
known as the Ashes. Then. No, it wouldn't no, have been by not then. quite. It's, that's 84. No, he took 24 wickets at 21.75. Yeah. Well, it's uh, 82, 82 in, in London when they play the the derivation match. Yes, so, yeah, so it's 80, 80, yeah, 1882 and then 84 is the first series declared as the Ashes in turn. Yeah. So 78 wickets at 22 in test matches and 594 at 18 at first class level, so a pretty useful player. Turned out for Victoria mostly as a domestic player. He eventually became an opening batsman towards the end of his career. Then plays like these rogue games for Tasmania seven years later after his retirement in 1897. But no. At test level, 296 runs at 14, a top score of 48. And in keeping with the theme of many dusty old bastards uh, over the last six months or so, he was also a gun footballer playing in the VFA before the VFL, of course, uh, for South Melbourne. Cap number 23, Joey or Eugene Palmer, a DOB with 296 runs to his name. I think it works. I think even though 17 tests seems like it shouldn't be dusty, the fact there was a guy called Joey Palmer who... I don't think I'd ever heard of until today's show, not consciously anyway. He feels dusty, even though it's 17. It's like, I think there's got to be a dustiness multiplier effect for how far back in time (laughs) you're going as well. So if you're getting to an 1880 debut, then that's a lot dustier than, say, you know, playing 17 tests in the 1970s or something like that. Okay, next up we have a triple header, the triple cheeseburger. Uh, we've got Timothy O'Meara to begin uh, from Parkmore Cricket Club. Uh, well, that's, of course, assuming that Parkmore Cricket Club's still a thing, certainly. That was the conversation we had on one of the, the live Zoom chats. Simon Butcher and Jaya Prakash is back for another swing. Uh, Jeff, let's split them up. You can start with Timothy. Yeah, so the number here is 383. It's not all in the same currency. Let me tell you, there's a 383 AUD, there's a 383 pounds, and there's a 383 euros. Ooh la la. (laughs) Across the, the triple header here. So the 383, where do we go with this? Timothy pledging in the Aussie dollars. Uh, there was no clue given. And so, look, the obvious, some numbers have a most obvious association and 383 is always Ian Botham's wickets, which is, you know, probably not where Timothy's going. It could also be Brett Lee's cap number. We had Brett Lee's wickets with 310. We could have Brett Lee's cap number with 383. We could have David Milan. The last time he came out for the Ashes, he made 383 runs. But, hmm. um you know, he'll be probably coming out again as, as far as we know. But I, I did just get sidetracked into looking up a bit of Ian Botham stuff. You know, not always my my favourite character as, a, as an individual human being, but, um, you know, the cricket stuff is hard to argue with. A player who gets remembered more for things he did with the bat, but he was probably better as a bowler than he was as a batter. He was... He had the world record for test wickets at one point, which was the 383. And when he started out particularly, he was extremely good with the ball and useful with the bat. That was really what he was supposed to be there for. So his second year of test cricket, 66 wickets and an average of 18 uh, is is not a bad start after just a couple of tests in his first year. And the career sort of falls into two phases. The first six years, 262 wickets at 24 and then the last eight years, 121 wickets, averaging nearly 37. So goes downhill as he gets a bit older and a bit plumper and a bit less enthused about training and all of those sort of things. But the early part of the career, it's it's about swing. The later part, it's it's kind of about personality. It's that Shane Warne thing of just convincing players to get out to you because they're worried about who you are. But I, I spent quite a bit of time watching old footage of uh, both and bowling to think about this segment. And it's interesting that, 
he really sort of strolls to the wicket. There are a couple of spells where he comes in a bit faster, but for the most part he just sort of trots up, sort of pony style, and then looks super casual, can just wobble it down, but sometimes he really gets into it and can ping down a much faster delivery, usually when it's the bouncer or when it's the Yorker, and he's, he does have that knack of hitting the base of middle stump at times with one quick that, that really swings in. The footage from 1981, that famous series, it, it looks like he's reversing it as well. I don't know if he would have known how to reverse it at that point, if, if the information was sort of working its way into uh, county cricket from Imran Khan and Safras Nawaz and so on that early. But it does look like there's some reverse there that's bringing it onto the stumps. And then there's yeah, a couple of wickets off the outside edge. There's one where he, he just kind of floats the ball up, very, very kind of half-paced delivery. And Richie Benno has a, a, a very Richie little backhander. He goes, that's a good delivery. Might even have troubled a number seven or eight. <laughs> I think the thing with both of them, right, isn't it that, I mean, you, you did the split there in the career. Mike Selvey, whose opinion on these matters I, I, I take as highly as anyone's, he thinks that both of them, Mark one, very, very start of both of them, was as quick as England's had. I hope I'm not verbaling mm. him here. I, I'm pretty sure he said before that both of them was brilliantly quick at the start and then he added to his game and became better and better and better. And then, as you say, there was this kind of mid-career point when things changed a bit and he did it more on personality and, you know, the golden bollocks era where he just managed to get wickets with shit deliveries constantly. Mm. That was part of his, I don't know, part of his magic. But early on, so maybe looking at that 262 at 24 stretch, those first six years, but I think specifically the first two or three years, he was rapid and was Mm. also scoring test century. So, um, yeah, it, it's easy to sort of think of both of them as a bit of a caricature, you know, towards the end of his career. And you think about the 92 World Cup when he's bowling slow, medium pace, but opening the bowling and bowling out Australia. And you're thinking, how is this the same cricketer that did what mm. he did in 1981, opening the batting he did in that tournament as well from memory. But yeah, it was a rich career that had several different chapters to it. And he's still obviously uh, trading off it to this day, making a great career, whatever he turns his hand to. Well, he was the fastest England bowler to reach 200 wickets. You know, mm, which is mm. pretty remarkable when you think about it. That's proper fast bowler's work. He he beat Alec Bedser in getting to 200 faster than Bedser had. So substantial achievements with the ball. Like if, if he only had his bowling career, he could still be remembered as a great bowler. So I think that's, you know, that that's where you come down to that definition of, of an all-rounder is whether they would have been picked either way. So uh, that's... That's probably not Timothy's number, but you know what, Timothy? That's the number I'm suggesting might be yours and you can let me know in the messages. Next up, we've got Simon who is in pounds. The clue, Ashes cricket and an Australian great bounced out. Hopefully that gets you started in due course. It kind of sort of did, but at the same time, uh, I think we've fallen a bit short here. It was three for 67, so not quite, when Bradman got out in the first dig at Melbourne during body line, which, you know, I think was our first thought. You know, a great bounced out Bradman body line, but it doesn't quite mm-hmm. tally. The Nawab of Pataldi, though, did get out at three for 83 in the second innings of that match. England won by 338 in the third Ooh. test to Adelaide. Uh, Vic Richardson, Almost. 83 minutes for three fours. I mean, it's all fairly spurious, really, when you're looking at 32-33. Then when Ian Chappell was out hooking Tony Gregg in 1970, which Chappelle talked to us about when we interviewed him a couple of years ago. So he gets out, it's two for 62. And then 
as we know, Greg Chappell walks in and, and plays the innings of a lifetime that Greg still identifies as his best ever. And it was two for 31 in the second innings when Jon Snow bounced him out. And so no good there. That was the test, am I right in saying, Jeff, where Chappelle's mum asked him afterwards, why do you keep hooking for? And it pretty much galvanised him to continue hooking. <laughs> <laughs> so moving through here, Chappelle did get out at three 82 in the second test. I, actually, I'm conflating those two test matches. That Getting out twice on the hook was the first test, which they lost. Yep. It was this, That was at Manchester, I'm pretty sure. The second yep. test at Lords is when he gets out at three for 82. He's made 50 by that point, and then that's when Greg Chappell takes over and plays a, an absolute worldly. But three for, three for 80, we're looking for I three know, for 83, one, and one he gets off. out at three for 82. One off. Come on. 383, there's really nothing there from the 2019 Lords tests when Archer knocks out Steve Smith. So I think, I'm afraid to say, Simon, we'll make amends next week. Just give us a bit of a hand. And also to our sleuths on the Patreon page, to the John O'Halans of this world and others who love getting into numbers that we can't quite solve, the floor is yours. And we'll return to that for you next week, Simon, 383. Yeah, just a little nudge. Just a little nudge. Because I feel like when when we're thinking about, you've got Australian greats. I mean, that that's a that's a pretty narrow sort of field. There's, there's only about 15 names that you might really put in there. But bounced out. I mean, Ponting was never bounced out. He was hit, you know, in 2005. But he so, – so Chapel at hooking, Bradman in body line and 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 Smith at Lords. I, there's nothing else that really springs to mind in terms of – I mean, it could be – I mean, so. Digger Hilditch – you know, that, that that's probably another really player. describe him as an Australian great. Yeah, he's, well, he's not an Australian great, is he? You're right. Yeah, that's true. He wasn't but, even a great selector, let alone a great player. <laughs> but I suppose, again, kind of coming back to that, that hook shot predilection. Mm. Steve Waugh, who put the hook shot away famously. You know what? That's enough there, though. We'll, we'll get there okay. next week, I'm certain. And the third is in Euros, Jay Prakash. So he's revisited his number for us uh, specifically. Uh, said it isn't both of them and added that I don't want to give any clues at this moment so I can listen to you from your long run and maybe learn things I didn't know yet. That is in oh. the spirit of story time if ever I've heard it, Jeff. All right. Long run. This was invited. Let's do it. Let's talk about a test match between Australia and England at the Adelaide Oval. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, not the Adelaide Oval, just Adelaide, Adelaide Oval. Oval. No, no definite article. Uh, let's talk about 1928-29. And yes. Uh, so many of our favourites, our final word favourites, are in this match. It's a match with a beautiful sequence of scores in terms of the team scores. 334 plays 369 plays 383 nice. plays 336. And if you look at what those scores come to mean later, 334 is Bradman... Uh, 369 is the Edrich-Barrington partnership when Edrich makes the triple century. 383 is Botham's wickets. Huh. 336 is Hammond. So, and none of those things have happened yet. They're all just uh, – they're, they're in the future at this stage. But That's even really cool. Hammond, did, did, is that in an article somewhere or is that just out of your own mind? No, I just, just saw it when I – well, I saw 334 and 383 and I uh, gave it another couple of minutes thought and there it is. The, the beautiful moments that, that, that hang together but the – Better thing is that Hammond and Bradman are also in this test in which, you know, the, the scores that they will make later by themselves are made by, by their teams. So By this point, Hammond had learned how to tour a bit better than he had in 25-26 when his knob nearly fell off in the Caribbean, right? So <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, by now he's got it together. He's worked out what not to do with the prawn after dark and 
That way you make more runs and you also don't die or nearly die. Yeah, well, um, you know, he he was certainly making runs during this tour, so it must have been away for the most part. England have been smashing Australia. They're leading 3-0 going into the fourth, I think, 3-0 up. Sutcliffe and Hobbs start off, make 143. So they're, they're in this game, of course, Sutcliffe and Hobbs. That's mm. where we start with the great names. Wickets start to fall regularly. Hammond's at first drop and he bats all the way through. He's scored a double ton in each of his previous two tests in this series. And this time around, no one else is making any runs, but he makes 72 of the last 88 runs in the first innings, gets them to 334. He's 119 not out. Seven of his nine batting partners contributed between naught and five runs to their partnerships with Hammond (laughs) while he was making a ton, which is... um, Fairly extraordinary when you think about it. And who took all the wickets? Clary Grimmett, <laughs> five for 102. Looking good, right? Well, they're looking good, Australia, until they're three for 19 and suddenly they're in trouble. But who should be there on debut opening the batting but Archie Jackson? Ah, yes, who, yes, always, yes, of course. Always confuses my mind slightly because I always think Archie Jackson, then I think Archie McLaren, then I think Charlie McCartney and I get mixed up. But Charlie McCartney is the Australian who made 300 in a day at Nottingham. Archie Jackson is the one in this test match and Archie McLaren is the celebrity racist uh, England cricket captain. He could be on the shit list. We were saying there's only one person on the shit list, but, you know, McLaren could definitely be on the shit list as well for the final word. So they're three for 19. Archie Jackson's opening and he just flows. He makes 164 at a good clip. He puts on 126 with Jack Ryder and 82 with Bradman. And I love this overlap because... If you ask most people who's the first Australian batter to average over 50 in their test career, they'd probably say Bradman, but it's Jack Ryder. And this is this little overlap where it's Bradman's first series and Ryder's last series and they play together in this this handover moment, this beautiful little moment that they have together. So Bert Oldfield's there, the wicketkeeper, who's also a bit of a fave. He gets Australia to 369, so a small lead, a couple of dozen runs in the lead. Sutcliffe and Hobbs are out early. There's a big chance, but then who should come in from stage left? The pantomime villain, Boo Hiss, Douglas Jardine. Here he comes with his stupid hat. He makes 98, and Wally Hammond with him makes 177. So after a double ton and then a double ton in the previous two tests, he makes twin tons in this one just to show off. Jardine eventually gets out for 98, and then who should intervene but Don Blackie, the ancient bastard, the old, the dustiest old bastard of them all. In his last of three test matches, he picks up a couple of wickets. Jack Ryder comes on for a bowl and gets Hammond. They're seven wickets down and then Morris Tate comes in down the order and bashes 47 at a runner ball while everyone else makes nothing. And so that gets England to 383, meaning they lead by 349 and at the end of day five, it's 24 with that loss for Australia. But guess what? It's a timeless test match. Day five doesn't mean shit. They can go for as long as they want. So the next day, Jackson and Bill Woodfull put on 65 to open. They both get out. Stork Hendry gets out for five. Too busy delivering babies to concentrate on his batting. This means that the first drop for Australia in a test match in which 1,422 runs were scored made seven (laughs) cumulatively. Two in the first innings, five in the second. That's that's real Sean Marsh, India, 2013-14 sort of areas there. Um, Incredible stuff. He made 0.49% of the runs in the test match. Stork Hendry, good work at first drop. But then they keep rolling. Alan Kipax makes 51. Jack Ryder makes another 87. Ted Beckett makes 21. And the end of day six, they're six down. 
but they've got 260 on the board. They only need 87 to win. And Bradman's still there when they start day seven. No one knows yet that Bradman still being there means anything because he's only just started playing test cricket. But he carries the score on to 308 when Ron Oxenham gets out. He's like Don Blackie. These, these are the only... Uh, tests that he'll play in this series in his career and he's aged 37 when he comes into the team, a seamer from Queensland. They get the score along to 3.20. Bert Oldfield's batting with Bradman and then disaster. Bradman on 58. He's at the non-striker's end. He comes back and tries to run a second. Hobbs gets the throw in and Bradman's run out for 58. They still need 29 to win. Bert Oldfield and Clary Grimmett batting together. They put on 16. Clary's going okay. He's hit a couple he gets a short ball from the spinner. He goes back. He smacks the crap out of it and he hits it straight into Tate at short leg and it bounces way up in the air and comes back down and Tate catches it on the rebound. And then Don Blackie at 11 goes a similar route, whacks one into the deep and Harold Larwood comes in off the rope and takes a diving catch. Sort of unknown in those days uh, and England win by 12 runs. 12 runs. One of the Still one of the, the smallest runs uh, wins in the history of Test cricket. The hero for England with eight for 126. Yet another slow left armour like the ones they kept rolling out playing just before his 38th birthday. What was his name? Jack White. He cleaned up 13 wickets for the match, Jack White, uh, and somehow after that incredibly even match in which the highest inning score was 383, the English win by 12 runs. You can definitely make the case that that's one of the best test matches of all time. Just given those who played, I mean, as you say, the crossover yeah. with Ryder and Bradman, Hammond... Uh, you know, Woodfull, Jackson's 100 on debut, the fact that Larwood's influential at the end with the catch, Tate likewise. I mean, this, this is a, that's, a, that's a cracking test match, well told by you, and fitting that it is our final new number of the show this week. So thank you, Jai Prakash, for giving Jeff the space to work in there on 383. Let's take a very brief pause, then we'll be back with some revisits, and then we'll wrap up the show. I'm Glenn Maxwell. Make sure you listen to my favourite podcast, The Final Word. Final Word Storytime, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon. Let's get into a few quick revisits. The first of those is from Doc Gowland, who sent through 261. I originally talked about John Carr and his run to beat Brian Lara in 1994, but it was not correct. Doc Gowland, hard at work in the kitchens, doing some good work as a chef, Doc Gowland, uh, out there uh, with the, the sweat of the brow, using that as seasoning to, to make the food taste even better. I'm sure that's how it works. Doc says, let me steer you in a more Australian direction. I was only eight years old at the time. He hit his peak, 2004. But this is someone who I thought in any other generation gets a baggy green. And you know what? Well, I think he's right. He's talking about Dom Thornley's 261 not out against WA in 2004 at the SCG, uh, which, among other things, beat David Hooks's record for the most sixes in a Shield game, clearing the rope on 11 occasions. We've actually looked at this innings before in the context of the 219 that Thornley put on with Stuart McGill, which was the eighth highest 10th wicket partnership in the history of first-class cricket and the second highest in the Shield. Behind, you mentioned Kipax a moment ago. Kipax and Hal Hooker put on 307 for New South Wales against Victoria for the 10th wicket in 1927. But back to Dom Thornley. He was walking out at number four in this game with no test players because they were all often presumably preparing themselves for the 
for the New Zealand series that summer. And there were no War Brothers either, who'd retired at the end of the 03-04 season. And Thornley was in his second year as a state player. Having come through the academy, he was ready to roll. Anyway, the middle order collapse around him. And it's 200 for nine. He's still well short of a century when McGill comes in. And yes, after that, it was complete carnage. And he makes his 261 not out, which made headlines around the world for the aforementioned reasons that he hit 11 sixes and uh, was batting with Stuart McGill, who wasn't in the test squad at the time. Now, going through it, he went on to make 1,065 runs at 63 in just his second season. If we had a player in the shield these days, Jeff, make over a 1,000 runs at 63 in their second year, they would be in the test squad. But And including four centuries, by the way, it wasn't sort of just the 2-6-1. He made consistent scores through the season, five half centuries as well. They win the competition, crucially, which is a massive effort when you consider all that change. No Michael Bevan, who moved to Tasmania as well at the start of that year. So Thornley had been part of the Australia A setup, and it looks like he'd go on that path to the national team, but it didn't quite happen. He had a couple of county stints, including one in 2005 at Surrey, a brief one, but he was averaging 77 there. And he was a he was a puncher's chance of getting an Ashes call-up. Both he and Hussey, Mike Hussey, who was playing, I think, for Durham that season, they were both making runs in England. They were both there and Australia as they were faltering at the time and they were kind of looking around as to who might come in. But as we know from Dan Bredig's book, they wanted to get Hussey in because Kerry Packer wanted to get Hussey in, but it didn't quite happen for him, <laughs> nor did it happen for Thornley. Kerry was right. I mean, Kerry was right, yes. I, I, I wouldn't say that about everything, but in this particular instance, Kerry Packer was correct. And if... If I had the clout to be on the phone to the selectors saying they should have picked Mark Hussey in 2005, I would have made that call. I was just <laughs> screaming it at my television. But if there'd been a direct line, I would have, I would have picked up the receiver. I would have, uh, you know, if well, the they right had person that. asked well, me, well, I would have considered my answer. Well, the Channel 9 commentary box had that red phone, didn't they, that Mark Nicholas talked about uh, during our Calling the Shots interview, which you can listen to in full uh, in the final word archives from last year, where when that phone rang, it could only be one person. It was the Kerry Packer line to give a commentator a bollocking for whatever he had just said or, or whatever it was. Alas, uh, back to Thornley. So, yeah, he's a pretty consistent contributor, plays in the IPL in 2008, very solid through the second half of the Aughties, if you like. I hate that word, but I've said it too late to take it back. Averaging in the 40s throughout. Um, he led his state quite a bit through that stretch, albeit never making more than two centuries in a season after 04-05, which was probably the thing holding him back. So, yeah, he was good for your consistent scoring, but he wasn't good for massive match-winning innings, perhaps you could argue. He was finished by the age of 31, which seems a bit odd, but I suppose that's the way it goes if you're not going to play for Australia and there are other opportunities. Played a bit of T20 for New South Wales in the first couple of years of that competition. And then he was done 83 first-class games for 5,166 runs at 43, 10 centuries, 56 wickets as well with his, I'd call it, muscular medium pace. Never got better than the 261, though, that he made at the SCG in 2004. More recently, he's been the coach of the New South Wales Breakers in the WNCL. He finished up there this year and he's now moved on to the New South Wales men's pathway system. So still very involved in the game, Dominic Thornley. Dominic Thornley for the 261. Thank you. Clayton Lewis, the law firm with the 387. We were talking about Michael Klinger's first-class batting average <laughs> when Uncle Rod Marsh said, you don't have good enough numbers to get in the Australian test team. Clayton's clue was to try again looking back, which, as it turns out, is the name of the autobiography. Uh, I say that advisedly 
probably in inverted commas, written by, asterisk, Shane Bond. Clayton just helpfully solved this for us. Uh, my pledge was his test bowling strike rate of 38.7. That's the 387. So Shane Bond, always someone we like thinking back on, Adam, seriously fast. And it is... It stands out when so few players in professional cricket can do it, like when it's so rare to have players who can bowl above 150 k's up towards that 100-mile mark and keep hitting it consistently. He only was able to do it through 18 test matches and played a bit more consistently in one-day cricket with 82 one-dayers, but he was so fast that his body kept breaking down. Um, But when he was on, when it was happening, you watch some of it back, those... Yorkers that come in like homing missile on the stumps kind of stuff and nobody can do anything about it. Notable that he nailed Ricky Ponting seven times mm. in 15 matches. Ponting averaged 15 against Shane Bond. Couldn't couldn't really figure out how to face him. And that was Ponting in his pomp. You know, that wasn't Ponting sort of struggling later in the career really. It's also interesting that if you look at who had the best average against Shane Bond, Paul Collingwood. Averaged 106 against Shane Bond. Only got out to him once. Uh, wow, that Paul Collingwood, he sounds like a good player. I bet if he made big runs in a test match in Adelaide, there's no way you could lose it. There is no way. Made 100 that more. Could made 206 in a test match in Adelaide. Did you know? Did you know? Uh, so, Shane Bond in one day, as, uh, a couple of times he took six wickets, a couple of times he took five wickets. Three of those four occasions were against Australia, so he particularly liked blasting out the Australians. Uh, only played one test series against them, though, that nil-all draw, which was a decent result for New Zealand. They should probably have won it at the end if it weren't for a bit of umpiring in the third test, but um, Shane Bond didn't take many wickets in that series. But in one-day cricket especially, he was a thrill to watch. That he was. Thank you, Clayton Lewis. Uh, next up, the the originator of Nerd Pledge himself, Philip Meng with 334. Last week, I went into great depth about Bradman's 334 at Leeds uh, in 1930. Uh, Phil said it wasn't that. However, it is related to a bowler, much like Shane Bond, who broke down all the bloody time but was so talented. Uh, Phil uh, says that Bruce Reed ran the indoor cricket centre uh, nearby in suburban Perth. And Jack Jorgensen says he played at Balladura Indoor when he was a teenager. Uh, and Bruce Reed used to tower over the place, a nice guy to boot. So a bit of indoor cricket vibes there. From And indoor cricket was massive in, in WA uh, in the 80s and 90s. Tristan Lavalette wrote the sort of definitive piece on indoor cricket and its emergence through that time, and I suppose, Jeff, through our teenage years as well in suburban Melbourne, if you want to find that on the Cricket Monthly. But let's talk about Bruce Reed, who was Cap 334. I reckon for fans of a certain age, he felt like such a world beater because of the times when he took his big hauls of wickets. He made his debut back in like 1986 with Merv Hughes, I think it was. Six foot eight. He was virtually unstoppable when on, sw- on song and sort of swinging it back towards right-handers from that angle he would create. And that's why he got plenty of opportunities as a younger man, including the 1987 World Cup where he played all eight games for Australia in that winning tournament. None for 43 from 10 in the final, but in context, it was a relatively high-scoring game for the time. So only going at 4.3 runs and over with the new ball was important. Unfortunately, you press 
fast forward a year and he breaks down in Pakistan in 1988. I think that's the first time he did his back. And from there, it was a bit of a, a consistent on again, off again with him. He missed the 1989 Ashes as a result of that, but he did get back for 1990-91, which was without doubt the highlight of his career. Played four test matches out of the five in that series and took 27 wickets at just 16, including 13 at the MCG. So he was player of the match there and player of the series for that Ashes uh, campaign. And the following summer, it was almost identical at the MCG Boxing Day Test match against India. Six for 66 in the first innings and six for 60 in the second. So he loves bowling at Melbourne. And when I mentioned before why he felt like a world beater to, I suppose, fans of a certain age, and that makes sense for me, doesn't it? Because they were consecutive Boxing Day tests when I was just becoming aware of what that all meant. And there was Bruce Reed, the big left armour. He unfortunately, though, broke down at Sydney, the week after those 12 wickets and he had another last push in 92-93 he actually got Australia going I forgot this he played the first test against the Windies at Brisbane in 92-93 got fit just in time and took five wickets in the first innings of that match and seven for it took two in the second but yes hurt himself again there and that was it for him in terms of Australian representation he was pretty consistent over two subsequent shield seasons when they got him fit one final time for WA but they kind of moved on by then they had Glenn McGrath coming through and Generation Next which included players like Paul Rifle and others and and Brendan Julian and got the trip to the Windies in in 95-96 but Bruce Reed did play 27 test matches for 113 wickets at just 24.63 they are a lovely set of numbers and played 61 one day internationals where he was a world champion in 1987 Philip Meng that's your man cap 334 Bruce Reed. Cap 334. All right, last one on the revisits, uh, I, although I will flag James Mellinson. I'm going to come to your number next week because that's going to require a, a little more time than we have today. But Lara Killick on the revisits, the 675. We were talking about the score that India made when Sawag made his triple ton. Uh, Lara came back to say all of her pledges so far have related to matches that she's been to and the large majority of those have been at the MCG. Well, 6.75 at the MCG. It was not on his birthday, but it was Peter Siddle, the 2010 Boxing Day test when uh, England smashed up Australia in the first session of the match, bowled them out for 98, got to 157 for none at the close. It was um, it was grim viewing as an Australian supporter. I, I, I wouldn't necessarily even call most, you know, I'm not particularly parochial, but at that match I was like, there is no cricket match to watch here. This is just going to be like days of watching Jonathan Trott bat didn't really appeal regardless of allegiance, I'll put it that way. Uh, so early on the next day, uh, Andrew Strauss and Alistair Cook did get out early on. Siddle knocked them both over, but Trot just went on through the day. Peterson was there making runs prior, made a half century. And they just went on and on and on, 513 by the time they were all out. And it was such a grind. And it just felt like Peter Siddle was Atlas carrying the team on his shoulders. He just wouldn't stop. He sent down 33 and a bit overs through the course of the day and he just kept chipping away uh, and ended up with six for 75. Fairly extraordinary frugality as well as the six wickets when you look at how many runs the innings tallied all up and just the fact that there were no wickets coming from anywhere else. Um, but there 
there was that little moment early in the day when he got, should have had Trot out early, but had overstepped the front line and a no ball was called, which might have made a difference. It might not, but yeah, it was one of one of many instances over the course of three or four years of Siddle bowling himself into the ground because um, there wasn't much else there in support for him. Yeah, that, I think that's the first high-profile time when a, when a batter was saved retrospectively by the third umpire for an overstep, and I reckon that's the one where you saw Alistair Cook about a metre out of his crease backing up. I might oh, yeah. be wrong, but I feel like that's the one. Not... Not a not in a malicious way. It was just the way that he backed up, and thus that's why the ICC eventually uh, fixed up their own man catting playing condition, which was brought into line uh, by the IC by the MCC uh, in in 2017. So it all has a bit of a, an origin story back to a final word theme there. Um, yeah, that test match, I, I was there every day, all four days of it. And when they, they bowled out Australia for 258 early on day four to win by an innings and 157 with 19,000 people there. I've never seen the MCG quite like it because it was bloody hot. I think it was 40 degrees that day, 15,000 palms, and they were all sat in the bottom deck of the southern stand and they were all going fucking wild and rightly so there were very few Australian fans left knowing what was about to happen they were about to lose the ashes <laughs> at home for the first time in, in, a, in a generation and the celebrations on the field went for hours I, I sat there I was at the I was at the lunch that day uh, in the in the posh seats and so we kind of watched the celebrations play out as we just enjoyed ourselves in in hospitality through the course of the afternoon of course that would go on to be the last time that Ricky Ponting would have lead Australia in a, in a test match he injured himself there and Michael Clark Broke replaced him for the Sydney test that's right and uh, and Usman Khawaja made his debut there in turn. But, yeah, it was a, a fateful week uh, for Australian cricket there. And Siddle did have his say, six for 75. What a performance. Thank you, Larry Killick. When Usman Khawaja got six pages in the Sydney Morning Herald for his 37. I think it was eight. I think they got eight, eight articles in there somehow. I just say that, that that test as well was the catalyst for the Argus Review, which basically tore Australian cricket apart because you're not allowed to lose the ashes at home. And I that- genuinely think, you know, having been sort of thinking about thinking about ashes in Australia in the last day or two writing about it Jeff I reckon that a lot of the bad shit we see now like the really cringeworthy reporting all the little drive-bys does come back to 10 11 it's like you know if you lose the ashes in Australia everyone's heads on the chopping block and it sort of it fuels can't afford to do it can't can't. afford to do it again who who was coaching then Tim Nielsen anyone heard of him lately no anyone anyone had a phone call from Tim lately no (laughs) send out an SOS we don't don't know where he ended up I actually spent that day when 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 Siddle took it I think Siddle Sixth was over two days but I can't tell you definitively because I mean later in the week I was sitting in the post sheets on day two spent the evening I remember with a couple of mates deciding after a massive dinner funny that that we would go and do a triple jump competition at a local at a local park and somehow nobody broke a bone. But we were all going, oh, I won the triple jump when I was in high school, but I won the bloody triple jump when I... Well, let's, let's, let's take it outside. <laughs> and so it goes. Was, was there anything on the line? Was, was, there, a, was there a prize at stake? Was there, <laughs> there wasn't. Was After we cash the, on the barrel? <laughs> uh, right, Jeff, I, I have a lunch to get to. Uh, to, yep. to, to uh, Speaking where I, of. Where you, I won't be quietly... Got any to triple jump on later? <laughs> Uh, and then I got a holiday to get to tomorrow. Let's call stumps on story time. This if week. you if you went on holiday to a certain sort of uh, city, yeah, you know, kind of on the way to the Black Sea, you'd be making a Tripoli jump. 
No, we're not going there. We're heading in that sort of vague direction, though. Uh, look, uh, Jeff, um, I want to thank everybody who's been involved on the Patreon page and the Discord channel. I promise that I'll be more involved in the Discord channel when I'm back from the holiday, and I have a few quieter weeks. Well, we'll be covering mm-hmm. the T20 World Cup every single day, but I won't have quite as much on my plate so I can engage a wee bit more. That'll include uh, revisiting a lot of nerd pledges that we haven't quite gotten around to yet. Thank you to everybody who's been kind in sending them in. We're right neck and neck with Jimmy Anderson, as we mentioned on the weekly show. We might have just dropped below Jimmy again, possibly, but we will see. Who Who knows? Who can tell? It's it's, it's an ongoing back and forth at the moment, the push and pull. It's a titanic struggle. Mm. Thank you to Brick Lane for their wonderful support. You can get a discount of 14.5% by plugging in Maxi145 in the the checkout bar at bricklanebrewing.com. Thank you to Bad Producer Productions. We're on their label, badproducerproductions.com. Jay Mueller, Astrid Edwards, and of course DC, who Dave Collins, I should say his real name, who edits us uh, patiently week in week out often two or three times a week so thank you to that DC everybody who listens and shares the show and rates the show and tells their friends about the show it's all part of it uh, and uh, we can't wait to do it all again next week thank you Jeff for your research this has been the final word story time have a nice weekend love you I had to go Thanks for listening to the Final Word Cricket Podcast. All of Adam and Jeff's previous episodes are available at finalwordcricket.com, including Storytime 20. That's 40 story times ago. 40. Almost a year's worth of nerd pledge. Why Storytime 20? Because it features comedian Will Anderson. It's a great chat. I think you're going to love it. Finalwordcricket.com for all things Final Word. And thanks once again to our friends at Brick Lane Brewing. Shop online at bricklanebrewing.com. Thanks for listening. More from Adam and Jeff real soon.